Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, let me say, just say once again how much of a joy it is to be here and to get to know some of you. To, I had the privilege of uh, meeting some of you this morning. And uh, thank you for your welcome and thank you for your fellowship. Our reading this evening comes from the Old Testament and the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus, chapter 33, and we're going to read from the beginning to verse 23. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had got into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua the son of Nun, Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then, if you will allow me, please, to uh, go into the next chapter, chapter 34. I know this is not in the bulletin, but Uh, It is connected with what we've just read, 34 and verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to your word now, we pray that your spirit will move among us and that we'll take the scales off our eyes and will allow us to see the glory of God. And we give thanks for the reality of where we stand tonight. We are in the time of the New Testament where Jesus has been revealed to us as the Son of God the sacrifice and the high priest who gave himself for us on the cross. So, Father, we pray that we may read and understand the Old Testament through the lens of the new, and we pray that we might be enriched and edified through our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. When we think about Moses' We can think about many, many episodes in his life. He's one of the best-known characters in the Bible. One of the most peculiar aspects of his life was that when he died, nobody knew where he was buried because we're told in Deuteronomy 34 that the Lord buried him, which means that nobody can ever go to his grave today. He's an unmarked grave. Nobody knows where it is. But let's suppose there was a place where we could go where we knew that he was buried. Let's imagine that there was a gravestone uh, on that place. What do you think it would say? Usually a gravestone, it contains the identity of the person whose body is buried, and it says something about him, just a, a sentence, maybe one line that describes that person's life. What do you think that one line would be? Well, I want to take a guess this evening, and it's purely a guess, but it comes from the Bible. 
And it's from what we're told when Moses did die in 30, Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 10. When he died, we're told this, there has arisen no one, no one like Moses. And then it says this, who knew God face to face. What an epitaph. What a description. He knew God face to face. And of course, I'm sure that you know a lot about the life of Moses. You'll be able to go back to that moment when he saw or when he saw something of the the splendor of God and the flames of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and when he conversed with God there. But that's only the beginning. In fact, the whole of the book of Exodus is full of episodes and accounts where Moses regularly speaks with God. You remember in Exodus chapter 19 when the people had come out of Egypt and they gathered around Mount Sinai and God called Moses to the top of the mountain and where He gave him the Ten Commandments and He personally spoke to him there. There was a person, personal conversation with him, but that doesn't end there. In this chapter here, we read that there was a special place that Moses built for himself where he went and where he regularly conversed with God, so much so that the effect was that his face shone to the extent where the people had to ask him to please cover his face because they couldn't couldn't cope with the, 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 the splendor the resplendent face of Moses. I want us to look this evening at this account, this peculiar account in many ways. And I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers. In fact, I'm going to admit right away that there is a great deal of mystery to this. And if you've come here expecting me to reveal something that's not in the Bible, then I'm afraid you're going to go away disappointed because I don't have that. All I have is what the Bible says. That's the kind of church we are, one which is confined to what the Word of God tells us. But nonetheless, I hope that by reflecting on this account that we will be enriched as we reflect on it in the light of the whole of the revelation of God in the Old and the New Testament. We are such a privileged people that we're able to look back and read the Bible in its entirety, and we're able to perceive how the events and the ceremonies and the laws and the predictions and the prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the New and supremely by the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm going to go through this chapter or the account that we have, and I'm going to simply confine ourselves to the natural questions that are bound to come to our our minds. And I'm sure that you asked these questions even as we were reading it earlier on. There are natural questions, three, that are specifically I want us to ask very simply. Simply this, why was Moses not able to see the face of God? What was it that God forbade Moses to see? He says, you shall not see my face. And then secondly, 
the second natural question is, well, what did Moses see? What was the vision that Moses had? God describes it in these terms. He said, you shall see my back, but my face you cannot see. What are we to make of the back of God? What is the back of God? Or how are we to understand this mysterious expression that God uses? Again, I don't have the answers in perhaps the terms in which you're asking them, but I believe that, that these verses lead us on to thinking further into the Bible and to ask, well, what is it of God that we can see? and that we can perceive and understand in the pages of the Bible. But then I want to ask a third question. And that third question is perhaps not one that is so common when we read this passage, because you have to go into the next passage. And the mistake we make, of course, is to stop at the end of 33 and, and rather than go into 34, where we have an account of what actually happened. We don't get to see exactly what Moses saw, but we get to hear what Moses heard. And I want to suggest that for us, that's what we do know. And that's what we can come away with. Here is God announcing something, not just for Moses' sake, but for the benefit of all of humankind this evening. And that's what we're going to concentrate on. These three questions, what did Moses not see? What did Moses see? And what did he hear? But there are other questions, aren't there? Natural questions that arise, like, for example, why did Moses, what gave rise to this whole episode, this confrontation that Moses had with God in Exodus 33? What was the background to it? It's important for us to remind ourselves of where we are. Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt. There were the ten plagues. There was the plague of the Passover that we read earlier on with Pastor John, and the whole exodus where the waters of the Red Sea divided, and the people of Israel were allowed to pass through the waters on dry land. You remember how the people of Israel were summoned to God, where they surrounded Mount Sinai and where God met with them in fearful imagery, fearful terms, so much so that they couldn't cope with, with it anymore. We can't listen to this, they said. They were absolutely terrified with the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the voice. They knew as never before if you had asked these people, do you believe in God? They would have said, yes, of course we believe in God. But this was different. This was actually meeting with God. This was a discovery of the reality of God for the very first time. And they couldn't cope with it. And I probably would have been the same. And so would you. But you remember what God said to them. He reminded them that they were His covenant people, which means that they were in special relationship with God, a relationship that went all the way back to Genesis, to their forefather Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and to when God had pledged Himself to Abraham and Isaac, and He had promised them that one day they would have the land of Canaan. But more than that, that, that Abraham, who at that time had no sons and he was elderly, 
he would have so many offspring that they wouldn't be able to, nobody would be able to count them. They would be as innumerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. He promised that, that, they, that in his seed, in his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And he promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. That's what we call the covenant that God made with. When God established that permanent special, unique relationship with this one family in the world, the family of Abraham. And God reminded the people at Sinai that He had taken them, carried them on eagles' wings. People think of Sinai as the time when God imposed His restrictions on them by the Ten Commandments. No, it wasn't. The Ten Commandments were the most liberating set of circumstances. God was simply acting in accordance with the privilege that they had of Him being their God and them being His people. The Ten Commandments, when you really think about them, are the safest set of circumstances that you can think about. And it should have resulted in people. Can you imagine being one of the children of Israel? And, and it's what, this is one of these situations where I think it, it is useful to imagine you're listening to God making all of these promises to you, promising you that one day you'll go to the land of Canaan and everyone, shall, everyone will, would have his own habitation, that he would protect them from their enemies, and, but they were to live this certain lifestyle. And here are the Ten Commandments. They ought to have felt absolutely thrilled because they were in the presence of the living and the true God who was not going to destroy them, but who was on their side. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? There wasn't a safer place in all the world than to be amongst the Israelites. Imagine that, that you had the pillar of cloud right there in front of you. The Red Sea has divided in front of you. You've gone through, you've been delivered from the most oppressive regime that you've suffered and your forefathers have suffered for the last 400 years, and you're now in safe territory. What's more, that God is promising you that in a matter of days, you'll be in the promised land, and that is a certainty. How could you not feel the most intense, immeasurable joy? And at first, as God said all these things, Exodus 24, the response of the people was, everything that God says we will do. But then things went catastrophically wrong. And instead of being consistent to their promise to do everything that God had told them to do, they did the very opposite. They departed. They forsook God. They broke the first commandment. They broke the second commandment. They broke the third commandment. And they went their own way. They said, build us 
a golden calf, a calf that we could worship. They tell me, the scholars tell me that that's something like the kind of God that they would have had in Egypt. It was probably something familiar to them instead of, how could they do this? Can you now understand the dilemma that Moses that was in? He was breathtaking. This wasn't the Philistines. This wasn't the Moabites or the Hittites or the Hivites. That's what you would expect from heathen nations. In some ways, they, lo- they knew little better, but this is God's own people. And within days of meeting Him and, and encountering the fearful realities of His presence, they're building an idol. How could they do this? It was unthinkable. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. That's the background to the story. And they're now, Moses is now trying to contend with this new situation that he can't understand. What's more, God is suggesting to him that there should be another arrangement. He says in chapter 33, I'll tell you what, Moses, I have a suggestion. You go on up, carry on, I'll protect you from your enemies, and I'll take you into the land of Canaan, and you will arrive there, you'll be established in this land, but I'm not going to go with you. Because if I do, you run the risk of being destroyed. You're a hair's breadth away from being consumed. And for Moses, and indeed for the people, that prospect is unthinkable because it was God's presence, God's closeness, and we're talking about the living and the true God now, we're not talking about some, some futile piece of wood. We're talking about the living fire of God departing from them and leaving them to be like every other nation in the world, left to their own devices and to do what's right in their own eyes. That is unthinkable because it was God that gave them their uniqueness and separated them from every other people in the world. And so Moses, at the end of the conversation with God, when God finally reassures him that he will continue to accompany his people to the land of Canaan, Moses is like at the very end. I, I think I, I, my own, and I suppose I, I, an educated guess was that this was a way in which Moses finally and supremely hides himself in God. He wants to go back. You remember that the glory of God is a theme that runs all the way through Exodus. We start it at the burning bush. We end it with the glory of God filling the tabernacle. Moses and the glory of God go together, and he wants to go. He had first encountered the glory of God, of course, in the flames of the burning bush. And in a way, it, that became... that he Once that had happened. He never lost his taste for the present because nothing, it doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better being face than being face to face with God from knowing Him from, from that closeness. And whatever God was going to do, I believe that Moses wanted his reassurance that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that He was still in covenant relationship with Him. He needed that assurance. 
And so he asked God, show me your glory. But there's another question as well. The other question, the second question is, is why did God do this? Why did he show Moses his glory? And the simple answer is because Moses asked for it and God will withhold no good thing from those who ask him. God has promised to give us everything, more than we can ask or even think. But, let's, but, but what about the questions, though, that I started off with? What about the question, what did Moses not see? God said to him, you shall not see my face. Verse 20, he says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, when God talks about His face, and we'll explore this a little bit more when we talk about the back that God described, but when God talks about the face of God, what we believe that to mean is the resplendent majesty of God, the fullness of the glory of God. And the reason that it is impossible for humanity to behold the glory of God, that in its fullness is simply this, that we have become estranged from God by our sin. There's two things I want to say about this. First of all, that again, as we, as we look throughout the pages of the rest of the Bible, we're given this great promise that one day we shall see Him. First Corinthians chapter 13, that although we see today in a glass darkly, we shall see Him face to face. That is the prospect that every Christian can look forward to beyond this life, when in the resurrection of the dead, when we shall be forever with the Lord, when, the, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, we can look forward to the greatest blessing of all, which is to see the majesty of God, because our sin, the sinful world would have been destroyed, and we will be forever with the Lord. But there's a more immediate um, thought that comes to my mind, and it connects with what Pastor John was talking about this morning, and that is a reaction to what God says. What is your reaction to, to verse 20, you cannot see my face? for man shall not see me and live. Does that not go against, does that not contradict the kind of popular notion that there is amongst men and women today? Just like what Pastor John was saying this morning is just so offensive, wasn't it? It was just so offensive. I mean, anybody who sat there, I was sat there and I'm thinking, this doesn't make me feel good about myself, as it doesn't do anything for my self-esteem, surely. I mean, I can think of, of, of so, many, so, so many people. I know people who would have reacted that way. And the same type of thinking says, well, there are many ways to God, aren't there? Have you ever heard that? You've heard people saying, well, it's like a mountain. I'm sure you've, you must have heard this. It's like God is on the top of a mountain. And, and people like to think about God sitting on the top. I mean, I don't know where they got that impression from, that God's somehow sitting on the top of a mountain. And instead of one road up to the top of the mountain, there are 20 roads. You ever heard people talking like that? And they say, well, I believe that there are many roads to God. And it sounds so plausible, doesn't it? It sounds so plausible. The presupposition is that somehow God is waiting 
for us to get there. To find a road, and it doesn't matter which road it is, and the presupposition is that when we take the road, that we'll get to him. Where did we get that from? Because the Bible tells me that, let's just suppose that that was true. Imagine that that was true. Imagine there was a way in which, do you know what would happen when we got to the top? We'd die. Instantly. Why? Because no man can see my face and live. And that is equally uncomfortable than discovering the greatest problem in humankind is total depravity. It goes against everything we want to think of ourselves, doesn't it? We think we're so entitled. And we think that all we need to do is to make adjustments. We are so, we are, of course, are willing to admit that we're not perfect. All we need to do is a little bit more education, a little bit more adjustment, modification here and there. And of course, God can, as this, this passage says, man shall not see me and live. That is what we lost in Adam when he sinned against God. We became totally depraved, and we lost the presence of God. But the marvelous thing, as we heard this morning, is that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be restored into fellowship with Him, and we can lay hold upon that great promise that one day we will be forever with the Lord. So let's go on to number two, the, the second question. Then I know the time is running out, but but the second question is is that if we read verse twenty and uh, on to twenty three, you cannot see my face. God says, and for man shall not see me and live. But the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then. I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And of course, this is where God says to Moses in answer and response to his request, I'll take you to this, this cleft, a little mini cave, I guess, uh, on the top of, of, of the mountain or somewhere up the mountain. And Moses was to, was to locate himself in this case, cave, and God was going to put his hand, whatever that means, he was going to put his hand so Moses would be protected from seeing the, the unveiled majesty of God, and God would pass by him, and Moses would see his back. What is the back of God? It sounds so irreverent, doesn't it? It sounds so awkward. How can you talk about, how can we talk about God in these terms? Well, let's remember, first of all, that this is not our words. These are God's words. God is describing Himself in these terms. Let's remember also that this is what we call in the theological world an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is where God describes Himself in human terms in order for us to understand something about God. And here He's doing it. He does it many times in the Bible. For example, He says to us that He walked in the cool of the, in the, in the, cool of the day, walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, if He walked, then that presupposes that He has got legs. Well, we know that God doesn't have a body. He is spirit. He's invisible. He's immortal. 
He doesn't have parts like we have, component parts. But he describes himself in these terms in order to help us to understand. Now, one important thing here is that we're not to dismiss this, dis- this description. We're not to say, ah, yeah, but we know that's not what he means. He does mean it because that's what he says. This is his word. And we're not to dismiss it. We're to accept it as God's description of himself, even although we don't understand it. So I have to confess right now, I don't know exactly what Moses saw. Now, that'll be a disappointment, won't it? Because I don't know how many of you read a passage like this and you think, well, I wish I had been with Moses. I wish I had been him. I wish I saw what he saw. Let's stop there for a moment. And let's try to understand this in terms of the rest of the Bible. Moses saw something. He saw something of God. And the way I want to translate the back of God is simply this. The back of God is that of God which can be seen or could be seen. That which was permissible to be seen, that which God allowed, but, but he still saw something of God. And here's the next thing I want to say. That we who live in the New Testament times have actually seen more than Moses. We are more privileged than even he was. I don't know what he saw. It must have been marvelous. I'm, I don't doubt that for a moment. And yet, think of what you and I have seen of God. Well, you say, well, I don't see God. God is invisible. That's not what the Bible says. Let me tell you what, what the New Testament tells us about what it means to see God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. It tells us this, the Son, S-O-N, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God, not was, but is tonight, right now, the sun is for us. Jesus is the radiance. Now, the whole point of a radiance is something that is seen. A fire is radiant. The sun in the sky is radiant. We see it. It's obvious. It's clear. You feel its effects. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying exactly the same thing is true about the Lord Jesus Christ Well, perhaps you will say, well, yes, I agree that if I was in heaven tonight, then I would be able to behold the radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be an absolute marvel to watch. All I have to do is to read the book of Revelation, to read the vision in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation, and I, I, I get a taste of what it must be like to go into heaven, but we're not there yet. So how can we talk about the present time? The fact is that 
the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is accessible to you and to me tonight as we worship, as we come into his presence, as we come together, as we, as we are confronted to, to, today, to be seen. Second Corinthians and chapter 4 and verse 6, it tells us that Second Corinthians and chapter 4 and verse 6, it tells us, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means that while we don't see Him with our physical eyes yet, we see Him just the same as we come to worship, as we listen to His Word, as we contemplate and reflect on His reality and what He has done for us, Him coming into the world and Him ascending to the Father's right hand, what Paul is saying is this, that it is as clear as anything you can ever see. God has shone in our hearts. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. I don't need to, I'm not going to continue to try and prove. We see Jesus. We see Jesus, who for a, for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So there's this language in the New Testament of, the, 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 of perception, of clear perception. Let's just drill down, and, and, and I'm going to come to the, 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 the third and last question now. Well, let's just drill down just a little bit deeper into the question of the glory of God and what we mean by the glory of God. I suppose automatically we instinctively think of the splendor, the brightness, the, something like the vision that the three disciples had on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus appearance was changed and it became as, as bright and as, as, as resplendent as the sun. That's what we normally think about when we think of glory, something majestic. But remember this, that God's glory is revealed in that way, but it's also revealed in what He does. We need to remember that, that God reveals Himself in the, in the Bible in His actions in what He does all the way through the Bible. Now, I want to come to this, as I'm sure that we can think of many episodes in the Bible where God's splendor is revealed in His power and in His, in, in, in his, in his miraculous working deeds. But I want us to just, just focus on one particular verse in, old, in the New Testament with Jesus when He said, Now, He said, is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. You remember when he said that? The, the interesting thing is, although we can think of many occasions when this would have been true, like, for example, the changing of the water into wine. I mean, that was a spectacular miracle. Or the walking on the water, a spectacular display of the majesty and the power of God. Or the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, that was just... It was so astonishing, wasn't it? What a, 
remarkable display of the majesty of God. But that's not when Jesus said this. He said this just before, or rather just after, Judas Iscariot had left the room, making his way to betray him and setting in motion the events that would end up with him dying on the cross. You remember that? When Judas left the the upper room, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. In other words, what you're about to see is a display of God's glory that you have never seen before. And that display of glory was the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, without beginning and without end, the perfect, sinless Son of God, having taken our nature and coming, come into the world, being born into the world as God and man. And He is about to be mocked, betrayed, spat upon, tortured, and crucified He's about to die. The horrific death of the cross. And that's what brings me on to the third question. What did Moses hear? I want, us to, I want to leave you with this this evening because that explains the glory of God in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does God explain Himself when He finally does appear before, before Moses in verse, uh, in verse 6, he, he descends in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name. Remember, the name of the Lord is the character, the nature of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, and he says, the Lord, listen to this, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and trans- transgression and sin, but who will know by no means clear the guilty. Now, here's my question. How do these two things go together? Here is God describing Himself, first of all, as an immensely gracious and forgiving God, and He describes Himself in the same breath as the God who will by no means clear the guilty. How can these two things be true at the same time? Is there any place where these two facts meet together, God's justice and His mercy? Well, you know what the answer is, don't you? At the cross, where the Son of God, He who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the glory that we adore this evening with abounding thankfulness and with commitment to Him, His work, His Word, the ministry of His Word, and to all that He has given us to do in the new life, the life abundant that He has given us and the life that will never end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray this evening that we may see Your glory. We've already seen it. We already saw it this morning, the glory of the, 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 the Son of, of God who was made sin for us, represented in the bread and the wine. Before our very eyes 
we have seen the symbols of what you did for us. We see it as we open your word and as we hear your word and as we come to you in prayer and as we enjoy the benefits of listening to your voice. Our Father in heaven, forgive when we ignore you and when we don't make the most, when we fail to make the most of all our privileges and take away our sin and, and prepare us for every challenge that lies in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.